It's about security. What is that supposed to mean? Money! What are you talking? He's got a lot of money! Now I hate you, you well, slow bastard! You. If you leave here, I hate you. You what if, I you if you leave here? I haven't paid attention to anything that's been happening I guess not. I think I must have misread all of those signals. Yeah, I guess you did. You're bored! You're bored and you know it. You wouldn't be here if there wasn't something missing. Arrogant son of a bitch! Would you just stay with me? Stay with you? What for? Look at us, we're already fighting. Well, that's what we do. We fight. You tell me when I'm being an arrogant son of a bitch, and I tell you when you're being a pain in the ass, which you are 99% of the time. I'm not afraid to hurt your feelings. They have like a two-second rebound rate, and you're back doing the next pain in the ass thing. So what? So it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to work at this every day, but I want to do that because I want you. I want all of you, forever, you and me, every day. <laughs> Will you do something for me? Please, you just picture your life for me. 30 years from now, 40 years from now, what's it look like? If it's with that guy, go. Go, I lost you once, I think I could do it again. If I thought it's what you really wanted. But don't you take the easy way out. What easy way? There is no easy way. No matter what I do, somebody gets hurt. Would you stop thinking about what everyone wants? Stop thinking about what I want, what he wants, what your parents want. What do you want? What do you want? It's not that simple. What it's do you want? God damn it, what do you want? I have to go. My next guest is a costume designer. She's been in the business for three generations. Her filmography, if I don't lose my voice here, reading off all of these wonderful works, movies, and shows, Preacher, Mr. Church, Friday Night Lights, The Notebook, The Salton Sea, Majestic, Green Mile, Waco, just to name a few. She's the wonderful and the very talented Karen Wagner. Karen, thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. You know, what I love about you is, you, you know, I mentioned third generation. So anytime I get facts wrong, please call me out on it because I pride myself on my research. And if I'm wrong, I want to know about it. Okay. So your grandmother's a silent film actress and your grandfather's an Academy Award winning cinematographer who, who won an award for Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca. Am I right with both of those things? That, that is correct. So I nailed those two. Good. Yes, but, you did. So, so, you know, I have to say, but your path was much more... I mean, I think it's always been in you, and I'm, I'm not trying to talk for you, but like it's, I feel like it's always been in you. But you I, always say, I always say I'm genetically modified. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But I like how, and I'm going to get, you know, you graduated um, UC Davis with a degree in painting and art history. You, yep. you kind of, I don't want to say took your time, but you were very selective about your path, which I really love. Like many people jump into something, and it's like, well, you know, I, not, this isn't right for me. You kind of took your time, and yeah, some things happened, but talk a little bit about that early part of your life, Karen. Well, I don't know if I selectively took my time so much as I'm kind of an omnivore when it comes to studies and interests. I love so many different things, and throughout my life, I've had this balance of being obsessed with science and math. I'm one of those rare, weird people who loves math. Um, so I've had this dichotomy between math and science and sheer creativity. And I guess at the end of the day, you know, as I sit here thinking about it, what I really had to do was find something that combined the two. So I tried a number of, I, I went to UC Davis hoping, originally hoping to pursue a career in veterinary medicine. And I, that kind of lost its interest for me. And I tried a few other things. I studied, you know, a little bit of law. I studied a little bit of chemistry. I studied a little bit of engineering. And I found myself really obsessed with history. But the study of history is so often linear and about specific things. And I'm really far more interested in the whole culture. So you can see where this is slowly leading me towards costume design because I do a lot of period pieces and I'm always obsessed with creating as much of the world 
that the script is portraying as much as I can, um, you know, whatever period we're in, like trying to, to tip a nod to the politics of the time or other current events of the time. So, and using what I do, uh, also to combine any science. So, uh, I recently become obsessed with, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'll be able to spell it right, to, to pronounce it right, but electromicron photography mm. um so it's it's microscopic photography and the and a lot of the images are you know the the surfaces of flies eyes and moths wings and and things and you can't imagine that they're going to look the way they do so i was able to take that for instance and and apply it towards the science fiction project that i finished earlier this year trying to to combine you know again combine my love of science with my love of of all things artistic and creative um so i think that it wasn't so much that i was carefully picking my path you mm. know al although i thank you for saying it in such a lovely way i think it was more me searching for something that would enable me to combine a lot of interests and keep me and keep me interested for a career's worth um yeah, because I, I have the attention of a, a fruit fly sometimes. <laughs> but I feel also like art and science and math are completely like, and I could be wrong on this, different sides of the brain, different. Like I feel like yeah. they're, but but for you, it's so I don't want to say odd, but it's so it's kind of an a, eclectic thing to have you be kind of strong in all three of those. Like you don't see that a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's uh, I talk to other people and and I'm. I'm always, I always feel like I'm not the smartest person in the room or the most well-educated in the room. And, and I'm often surprised to find that like other, you know, other people will know so much about one thing and then are not interested in learning about other things. And that's not to say, you know, either way is right or wrong. It just surprises me that everybody isn't as, um, I like to say omnivorous as I am. Right. No, and, and I feel, I mean, just looking from researching your life, I feel like your degree in art history really helped you in a variety of ways. I feel like you use it a lot in your profession. I feel like, you know, your, your attention to detail is unbelievable. Um, I just feel like all the things that go into being a history major, specifically art history, I mean, from the outside looking in, to me, it seems like it really made a big difference for you. Is that, it, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that kind of somewhat accurate? It's completely, it's completely accurate. I mean, I have probably a hundred thousand paintings in my brain. And so all you have to do is, you know, say a year or, or, um, mention a historical, uh, happening or, oh my God, a deer just went hopping through my backyard. So I'm looking out the window and this deer just went crazy running through my, <laughs> my oh wow, so beautiful. Um, yes, and the other thing that art history taught me, not just, not just like what kind of painting was happening at a specific year or what costumes were, you know, 1536 versus, you know, 1836, but, uh, framing framing and chiaroscuro and light how different painting movements used light or were affected by light and so i think that that has been a great uh how shall i say this has been a has been has been very helpful to me because I will notice the light wherever I'm shooting because you know I'm typically I'm on location and wherever I go the light's going to be different. So the light becomes a character and so I'm able to interact with the DP and the production designer and say well the light is going to be very northern or it's going to be very direct from above you know because we're closer to the equator we're, let's use a lot of brighter colors you know so there's this wonderful three-way conversation that gets going and I really love working with the other departments I, I don't like it when I end up on a show where everybody's in their own little bubble and doesn't want to communicate with any of the other departments because I feel like there's this great saying in the Arab world that a horse made by committee is a camel. Mm. And it might be a little more ungainly, but it's a far more valuable animal to have in the middle of the desert, right? Right. Uh, so I always feel like I want to create the camel, even though the horse might be more romantic, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. It definitely yeah. makes sense. 
So, so in your experience, do you find that it is a team effort? I mean, I heard you just mentioned the, the director of photography, you know, and, and what, I have a few questions about this topic. Um, I'll, I'll kind of be jumping around a little bit here, but like, do you find it's often, do you, do you, so your choices, right? So is it usually, are you working with a cinematographer and the director and the actors, or is it kind of just depending on the set? How does it usually work for you, Karen? Or like I said, is it is it a, is it a case by case scenario? It's really a case by case scenario, and a lot of it has to do. It often has to do with how much productions, like how crowded a script is, like how much there is to get done. Um, I know that everybody tries to communicate, and you know, it's like I try to work with the production designer and the set decorator and make sure that. Uh, you know, they're not putting up lilac wallpaper while I'm dressing somebody in lilac, you know, and all the standard things. And I know everybody tries to work together, but it depends. You know, it always depends on the combination of people. Um, you know, when I did Underground, which is a series about runaway slaves, mm-hmm. the production designer, the set decorator and the prop master and I, we were like the four musketeers, you know, and like every 10 minutes there was a text from somebody. I'm looking at this. I'm thinking about this, you know, um, you know, Karen, here's the gun they just picked. Can you make a purse that will fit the gun, you know, so she can go to the party carrying a gun in her purse, you know, like that kind of thing. It's always, we're always trying to work together. And sometimes it's possible. Sometimes it's not. And every occasionally you do run across somebody and that's just not the way they want to work. Right. Right. So, Go ahead, I prefer sorry. when you can. No, no, no. I prefer it when we do work together. No, and, and I, I, it would make more sense to. And I have to say, I don't think people really understand the impact of, of, of a costume designer. I almost feel like, you know, it really made me furious when the Academy was talking about getting rid of cinematography. And I almost feel it's the same kind of thing in a, in a different way with costume design. I feel like people – I don't think it's purpose. It's, it's on purpose. But I don't feel people – really understand how impactful your job is, what you do, and how much it really means to, and I read off a selection of, of your filmography, you know, I don't, I don't, I feel like people don't really understand the impact of what you do, Karen. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm going to have to plead the fifth or go on a rant. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, it's, it's very true. Although I will say that, uh, a lot of costume designers and I have formed a very, uh, very loose and unorganized and yet loyal banding together where we have really made sure that we start uh, educating producers and directors much to their chagrin often. But we have really stood our ground and said, listen, you you cannot do this without us much as you would like to. There's a reason you hire us and pay us. And we're as important as the production designer. We're as important as the DP. We're, you know, we're almost as important as the talent. Not, Of course, not quite. But um, we you wouldn't know, you know, like we always say, costume designers always say that when you see a character walk onto screen, you should know everything about them that you need to know before they open their mouth and say a word based on their costume, their hair and their makeup. Um, and if you don't, then we're not doing our jobs, those three departments. But if we are doing our jobs, You've just been fed a, a whole encyclopedia of information that you're taking in. But because clothing is often so taken for granted, right? Like everybody can dress themselves, right? right? So everybody, so people seem to think that because everybody can dress themselves, clothes aren't important. And then when I sit down and point out, well, you're wearing this. So I'm going to suspect you come from a prep school back East. And you know, these shoes indicate that. And they're like, how do you know this about me? And I'm like, well, based on your sectorial choices, I know these things about you. And it starts to educate them about what they didn't realize they didn't take into account, I guess you could say. So, yes, we're very, very important. No, yeah, and that's and that's probably an understatement in itself because even your work on – and I'm skipping ahead of a lot of things here – but even your work on Waco where you did research on the victims and – I mean, come on. I mean, that is – that is above and beyond, and, and people that watch th- that fantastic, you know, series or show, you know, they don't see that. They don't see, you know, they, they see a final product, which is great. So I'll right. just, 
but but they don't see what and I guess you could say it for everybody involved in a movie but I don't know I feel like there's a few um, I think sound I think you know costume design I think cinematography it goes kind of underappreciated I mean by by those who know better they appreciate what you do but I don't think yeah. it's like I don't think it's like a, a purposeful slight I just think it's people are so used to great things happening you know what I'm saying if that makes yeah. sense and I would add to that list I would add uh Post-production sound yep. and I add editorial because those things are absolutely critical to the success of a movie. I've seen movies where the script is not great and the acting is, you know, maybe a little uneven, but because of editorial and because of post-production sound, you have chills and the hair on the back of your neck is standing up and you don't know why. Right. Right. You know, so I think those are very underappreciated um, a very underappreciated departments as well. Yeah, and, and, and I agree with your team effort assessment. I don't want to, you know, break you away into a solo kind of thing, but but I, this is the one time I will. You know, a movie cannot do really well. Right? I mean, you can have a movie that I'm politely saying, you know, a, a flop, or maybe it doesn't do as well right. as people. But it's like your work still could be phenomenal. It's the same way a compo- right. a composer for the movie could have a phenomenal score, but because the overall overall you know judgment of the film was poor. I feel like yeah. other people suffer, but again, it's it's a team effort. I get that too. Yes, and it's and it's you know sometimes by the end of the project or even the middle of the project, you know the film is maybe not going to the film or the project is not going to do as well as you would hope. Um, but you're still going to do your very best work, you know. And there's right. a sort of an interesting pride in that where you you know you look at the production designer the production designer looks at you and you shrug and you're like that doesn't mean we're not going to turn in you know four thousand percent of effort right but we you know you can you know i mean i've been doing this for almost 30 years now so i have usually have some fair idea of how well it's going to do or what it's going to be when it's finished um but Yes. I mean, you always do your best work because it's no matter what happens with the project, it's your, you know, I always, it's always that there's always that moment when you're exhausted and it's 11 o'clock at night and you've been up since four o'clock in the morning and somebody comes to you and they're like, well, can I get away with this? Or can I let that pass? And you want to say yes, because you're so tired, you don't want to correct it. And you think, this is going on film for, mm. you know, for perpetuity. My name is going to be on this film and it really doesn't matter. I don't get to put, you know, like a header at the bottom that says like a little Chiron, you know, the costume designer was, had been up for 28 hours and she was just too tired to correct this. You don't get to put that Chiron in, in a movie. So you have to like take a deep breath and go, no, it's not okay. We can't get away with that. Come on. I'll help you find something better. You know, right, right, right. And do you find that? And we talked about you know how things are different on each set. You know, and it is a team effort. But do you have full authority when it comes to you know? Can, can an actor say, you know what, Karen? I don't really. Lo- I'm not digging this. You know, this this part of the uh, my wardrobe. Uh, yeah, okay, yeah, absolutely. And I I am very open to that. Uh, I really, I feel like I go into the fitting room with the actor to make sure a, that we, that we capture his character, uh, B that he's completely comfortable. And sometimes an actor comes in and they have, they have an idea that they're going to be, that it's going to look a certain way because they think their character's this. And then we end up sitting down on the couch and we have a conversation and I'm like, well, but, but your character says this here and it says this there. And then, you know, but at the end of the script, you do this and this is, that's not what this character would do. The one you're talking about. So there's, there's very often a long conversation about that first. And then if there's really a difference of opinion, then, you know, we'll bring the director in and say, well, what way do you want the character to go? You know, cause ultimately you're the director and of course this is your choice. And, you know, if we should go with what the, if we should go with what the actor is saying, then that's great. I'll adjust what I'm doing. Uh, and if you wanted to go more, the you know, what you and I have discussed, meaning me and the director, have discussed before the actor comes in, then let's have that conversation with the actor and see where we can meet in the middle. Right. So I try and always give the actors something at least of what they want, even if it's very different from what the original conception was. Because if the actor is coming at it a certain way then you've got to adjust the costume. 
And sometimes the actor walks into the room and looks at the rack and goes, oh, my God, there's my character. It's brilliant. Mm. Sometimes the actor wants to see research and says, "Okay, I had no idea what I was getting into. Now let's try on some clothes. You know, now I understand what 1908 looks like or now I understand what, you know, 1726 looks like. You know, I had no conception. So it's it goes a multitude of ways. And that's part of what makes fitting so exciting is to get in there with the actor and like really dig and root around and find it'll always be one item of clothing first. It'll be a pair of pants or it'll be a shirt or it'll be a blouse or a skirt or a dress. And they'll go like, I feel like me in this thing. And you're like, great, we got it. Okay. You know, then we can, we can create a character around this, this one particular item and then expand from there. So, you know, again, like, you know, it's, it's different in every, um, it's different every time. But I love that. I love being able to create the character in the fitting room with it with the actor. It's really it's really exciting. Right, and I, and I would hope that for you know for your sanity and for your sake that things are more on the adjustment part of it than the high maintenance part of it, right? Because that would be tough to. I, you, I, mean, I, I guess that's any profession too, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, absolutely, of course. No. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, I have to say I've been very lucky. I'd say like 98% of the time I've been really lucky and I've worked with amazing talent who has deferred, who has said, you're the costume designer. You don't tell me how to run my lines and and I don't tell you how to costume design. So you tell me what it's supposed to be. I defer to your judgment. I'd say 98% of the time, you know, and then every once in a while you get somebody who doesn't like the period, for instance, you know, that the, 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 the script is set in, like you'll be doing a 1940s piece and the actor hates forties clothes. And, you know, sometimes that can be a period of adjustment. You're like, Hmm, well, I can take it back towards the thirties or I can adjust it somehow, or I can make up something new that we've never seen before that could potentially be you know, of this period and then use everybody around this person to set the period. And sometimes you get somebody who just doesn't want to be pleased. And, you know, that in itself is just an interesting situation. Um, it doesn't happen very often, uh, but it does happen occasionally. And you're like, okay, here we go. You know, this is going to be that show. And, so, like, and later in the interview, Karen, we will list those people name by name. And yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> but, and their addresses. Yeah, but but I have to say, people don't realize. I mean, for those of you listening, how much work you do. Yes, I mean, you know, you design, you do, your, but you also read the script. You're also taking notes. You're also, I mean, you're like when I said your research was impeccable. I was not trying to be over the top. You legitimately, you ever, you've read the label frontwards, backwards, inside, outside. You know, yes, I have. Yeah, so, I have. And I'll also. Um, so there's so there's that. So I'll get a script and I'll do the research and then I'll come up with the so I'll do the research and I'll know the period, right? I've generally read at least two novels from that period. I've watched maybe 10 or 12 movies from that period. I've done extensive research on the range of what so like for the notebook. Um, there was an extensive range because I had a, a great socioeconomic stretch on that movie. So for my poorer end people, you know, it was Sears and Roebuck catalog. And then for my richer people, they went to New York twice a year and had their entire, you know, wardrobe, you know, wardrobes made, you know, bespoke. Um, so there'll be that range. And then I'll also find references that are not of the period, but will allow me to push. So it might be, and, and I draw a lot of inspiration from nature. So it might be uh, botanical prints of the period. You know, I might, you know, I might present to the director and say, this, this person, you know, yes, these are the shapes, but this is, this is what I, this is what I want to bring forward from, for the period. It's like these moths, like these moths were discovered and, and of in this period. And, and this is what the character reflects. And, you know, sometimes the directors kind of roll their eyes and I'm like, okay, another crazy artist, but sometimes they're really into it and they get it. So 
I'll have all these references. So I'll have all the solid references that are to have their feet solidly in the period. And then I'll have this other range of inspiration that will give me directions to push into. But then on top of that, I have to be aware of, of course, any fabric that's going to affect sound because my father was a sound mixer. And so, you know, we, we certainly don't want charm bracelets or taffeta that makes a lot of loud noise or anything like that. Um, I have to be aware, of course, of, this, of as we've already talked about, I have to be aware of set decorators and the drapers, you know, what color the drape's going to be, what color the couch, the wallpaper, the china, you know, where are you going with all of that color-wise? And then I also want to be aware of what the, what the um, director of photography is doing. Are they doing any post-production, you know, filters? Are they putting any filters in the camera? Are they going to be, you know, are they going to be leaching out any colors anywhere? Are they shooting on a specific kind of film different kind or using different lights that are more yellow versus blue daylight versus parking lot you know like what kind of what kind of lights are they putting up what kind of filters are they putting putting up what's the uh what's the uh the um oh god what uh gaffer what kind of what kind of um you know what kind of filters is he putting up over the lights so all of these things have to play in what I'm doing, and then that, and and then there's, um, and then there's like if there's going to be action, if somebody's going to get thrown out of a car or fall off a horse or get paint splattered on them or whatever it's going to be, I have to think in terms of you know do we need to cover them head to toe? You know how are we going to hide a if they're going to if they're going to be on fire and jump off a building? How do I concoct, you know, somebody's supposed to be, you know, for instance, okay, like here's just a wild, for instance, it's 1956 and somebody's having a pool party on the roof of a hotel and then they catch on fire and have to jump off a building. Like, how do I manage to cover them head to toe so that I can, so I can hide the Nomax as they jump off the hotel, right? you know, as they jump off the roof. Like, so there's a lot of. There's a lot of different things that come into what I'm doing. It's not just me going, oh, that would be really cool if they were wearing a paisley bathing suit. You know, it's not just that simple. It, it's, there's so many different, and all of us, you know, it's not just me, it's the DP, it's everybody. There's so many different, uh, there's so many different um, influences that affect our decisions, my decisions as costume designer. There's, there's so many you know, I feel like I'm, I feel like, I, I don't know if you've, if you've read here, I go again on my nerdy science, but octopi can hold on to a different person with each of their eight legs. And if they know the person or they don't know the person, they, they can sense disease and they can sense a lot of different things about, about you as a person just by touching you. And each of like, if they're holding on to eight different people with eight of their legs, each leg will turn a different color. Wow. And wow. I, I often feel like that octopus. So <laughs> I get brain, it. You know, they've got eight brains. Uh, one brain at the at the base of each of each of their tentacles. And I just I feel like I'm that octopus, like just constantly touching things. It's like, okay, that's pink, that's purple, that's blue. What color is this painting suit gonna be? You know? Right, right, right. Yeah. No, and I feel like, and that's why I love your filmography because I feel like if I, and, and to your a lot of what you've been saying, like if I put those movies on on mute and I just watched the the you know the way the actors look, the background, I feel like just just taking a few. Some, you mentioned the Notebook; it just looks great. Something the Lord made just looks great. The Green yeah. Mile obviously looks great. The Majestic looks great. So yeah, you're right. It is a team effort. It supports your theory. But when you look back on a lot of these movies, and I have a, some questions on your filmography, I'll jump around mm -hmm. a little bit. But uh, is there a particular one where you're like, not patting yourself on the back, but like you're still after, you know, years go by, you're, you're, I'm sure you're proud of all your work. But is there one in particular, or a few in particular that just stand out or any of the ones I mentioned? There's a couple that stand. I mean, I, I am really proud of the work I've done on most things. Of course, it could always be better because I'm an artist and that's how we are. Right. Um, but one of the projects I'm most proud of is Eve's Bayou um, because 
I created the the inspiration there for me. Of course, I was deeply rooted in that period. It's an African American community living way out in the bayou, and I wanted to. And I and the idea I sold to Casey when we first spoke was it was that I wanted it to be a lot like the Camelot of JFK and Jackie O. Mm-hmm. And she loved that, that I was creating this incredibly, um, incredibly uh, um, fashionable, you know, beautiful look in a tiny, tiny town out, out in the middle of nowhere. Like it was, it made it magical. And it was also my first period project. So I was really, I'm really, I was really excited about it. And to this day, remain very proud of the work I did. The next one, weirdly enough, that I'm really proud of is uh, The Green Mile. Mm. Because everybody takes that film and everybody takes the costume so for granted. And yet every single thing in that movie was meticulously uh, created. So I silk screened, before I made the convict uniforms, I silk screened the fabric. Um, and I, and I did it in such a way using less, there's something when you put ink on fabric, you use something called a binder, binds the ink to the fabric. And I have the silk screeners use less binding so that when I went to distress the costumes, the, the stripes would wear unevenly so that it wouldn't look like brand new and the stripes wouldn't look really, um, uh, they wouldn't look uh, contrasty. You know, they would kind of fade a little bit at the at the edges of the stripes. Uh, and then we were shoot, we shot the first half of that movie in Los Angeles, and the second half in Tennessee. And I remember sitting up in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning. I boom, sat bolt upright in bed, and I went, "Oh my God, what's the color of the dirt in Tennessee?" Because I have to grind that into the hems and the edges of the pockets of the, you know, I have to distress all of the, of the, um, inmates clothing to have that grounding dirt that never comes out no matter how much time and how many times it goes through the laundry. So that was, and like, nobody ever thinks about that. Right. No, your attention to detail is unbelievable. And then, and then the guards uniforms, guards didn't actually wear uniforms yet in the thirties, except at Sing Sing. There was only one prison in the United States where the guards had, you know, I had done all this research, you know, I'm going through stacks and stacks and piles and piles of pictures and papers, and I cannot figure out why I'm not finding any guards. And finally, I realized that the guards are the guys wearing, like, overalls and onesies or tank tops, and they're carrying guns, and the cons are the guys in chains, but they're often in what would be the equivalent of an Armani suit because, like, you know, they're... You know, you know, like drug runners or hooch runners or whatever. Right. They have expensive clothing and they're in prison. So I went to the director, went to to Frank Darabont, the director, with this, and I'm like, uh, we have a really intimate script, and the reality of it is not like the clothes aren't going to help your story. Like the real, the real clothes of the period don't help your story. I propose that we do these striped convict uniforms and we, and I create a guard uniform. And he was like, Oh my God. Yeah. Go away. Go make it happen. Go, go, you know, run, run, start drawing now. Hmm. So, um, so I, you know, so I created these uniforms and I, you know, and it's like a mix of influences on the uniform, but nobody ever questions those uniforms and nobody ever questions the convict uniforms. And that to me is the best possible award. Right. No, it's the biggest compliment imaginable. And and God, I I never even knew that. And that's, that's kind of like an amazing thing you learn from just, just hearing people like you talk. And you Mm -hmm. know, when, when it comes to John Coffey's outfit, was there anything special there for you? Or was it just, I don't want to say clear cut, but was his pretty much, you know, uh, because he's kind of a, he's very simplistic. I don't want to say Christ-like, but um, you know, very in that way, you would you would yes. want to give him a lot. So I, I mean, right. So that was, and you know, of course, everything had to be made for him because he's a, he was an enormous man in real life. Um, but one of the things that I I really fought for, and everybody eventually acquiesced, which was lovely, was that he, in reality. The actor's feet were 
enormous, of course, because he's an enormous man. And at the time, in the 30s, during the Great Depression, you would have had to have had shoes made for you if your feet were that big, or you would have spent your life barefoot. Mm. So I fought. I fought to have him go barefoot the entire movie, you know, whenever you saw his feet. And the director, you know, mulled and hemmed and hawed, and, and then he went, yeah, okay, you're right, you know. And, and everybody, you know, everybody went with it, which was, which was great. Um, and I did keep his, and I did keep his, his costume very simple. And I also kept him in what he would have owned because my other theory was that the, the, um, the prison wouldn't have had clothing big enough for him. Right. So, um, so those were two things about John Coffey. And I did, I kept his costume as simple as I could make it. Um, and, and innocent in a way, you know, like you look at those bib overalls and they, they present in your mind. When you see somebody in bib overalls, you think of somebody, not a Jan- Johnny Hayseed per se, but somebody very unsophisticated, somebody very close to the earth, a farmer, somebody who's a very, whose life is very simple, you know? So that was the reason I chose bib overalls over say dungarees and a shirt. Right, but I feel like it's your decisions there, and it makes total sense to me. Like, once you see the character unfold, and once you like the decision to go barefoot is perfect. The decision to keep it basic with the, you know, with the one, it's like, it's perfect, Karen. And that, like, you saw that unfold kind of before. So that's kind of like an amazing talent to have because I feel like that's not something you can learn anywhere. That's not something you can pick up. Like, your decisions were enormous in that scenario. Well, we're, uh, you know, costume designers are storytellers. We're, we're script writers in a way. Of course, we're not the, we're not the author of the script. And I want to make clear that I'm not, you know, in any way saying that I am. Right. But we are, but we are like, we're storytellers the way editors are storytellers. You know, we bring, we bring something to the script that the, that the, that the writer, the author of the script, the screenwriter probably didn't think about. You know, we're, we're creating all those other things around that they didn't necessarily, you know, that they weren't envisioning. They were envisioning what that person was going to say or what they were going to do and the denouement and the, you know, and the arc and all of that. But they weren't envisioning how to tell the story of that person's personality. Yeah, and it's amazing because a lot of these costumes that are designed for, I mean, because many of the movies in your filmography are legendary and the TV shows. It's funny how a lot of these um, things that you design end up in like, you know, sometimes they end up in the Smithsonian or they go for, for auction and they're, the, the prices they get. Have, have you ever been experienced that or, or been no, notified of something like that happening where, you know, something, no. okay, because that happens a lot, I feel like, in, in, in the world of movies and TV. I think it does. I think right now it's happening more with, um, you know, uh, films costumes and films that are really legendary you know not i mean thank you for you know thank you for your kudos and yes i've done some great work but i'm talking more like films like seven year itch right or you know like that kind of you know especially when the when the talent and every you know all the main players in the in the involved in the project have passed um, i feel like right now that's that's a lot where you know, or something as iconic as Star Wars, which has touched the entire world. Like those kinds of costumes are probably going to are probably going to um, auction now. Um, you know, occasionally, like I did a Hallmark Hall of Fame one time, and the and I and I came up with this really beautiful outlet, outfit for one of the actresses, and it did go into the Hallmark Museum. But like that's you know, like that's like the only. <laughs> It's the only the thing I could quote. But another thing I want to mention about the Green Mile was I really wanted to make that little guard who ends up stepping on the mouse, the really horrible one, Percy Wetmore. Yes, yes. I really wanted to make you hate him immediately and not know why, but just really be annoyed by him. So I... Again, Frank, very, you know, very magnanimously going, okay, take it and run with it. Let's see what happens. You know, this is great. Go for it. Uh, I put a squeak in one of his shoes 
So you don't see it, but you hear him walking and you hear his shoe squeak and it just irritates you. I never um, even I, noticed that until you just said it. I'm like, oh my God, yes. How and did that I miss was that? Purpose. That was on purpose. How did I miss that? I've seen the movie 400 <laughs> times. How did I miss that? <laughs> well, you're supposed to miss it. You're just supposed to hear it, you know, in the back somewhere. Right. You just hear it in the back of your brain and go, this guy's really irritating. I just want to deck him and I don't even know why. Yeah. <laughs> Before I go on, I have to say, though, if John Coffey's over, I don't know where they are now, but, you know, and, and God rest his soul. But if those ever went up for auction, it would be six figures easy. Aw. Easy. No, oh, I, I'm not like a part of me is telling you this because I believe it. But part of it, like, I know, like, I mean, it's just because think about how legendary that movie is. It's, yeah. you know, um, so, yeah, you yeah. get you get your start because you, you were doing a lot of times when I do my research, I like to watch other people's interviews. And I was like screaming at my phone because I knew what movie you got your start on. And then the host, she was trying to figure out what it was. And they were naming different Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. And I'm like, I know what it is. It's it's hard target. It's hard target. It was because <laughs> yeah, it was in New Orleans and you were super proud of it. And they were like, she said her assistant did research and they said the wrong. I said, I know this movie. So that's where you did get your start. And you must have been blown away to get that. I was. I was blown away. Um, I was really, really lucky. I had worked on, oh, God, uh, Sam Raimi's. It was the third in a series and Evil Dead. I had been costume supervisor on Evil Dead, and I had done a really great job for them, and they're very loyal people. And so Rob Tappert was his producer, and they called me and they said, okay, we're producing this movie. And I had also worked in Hong Kong. I had supervised a couple of movies in Hong Kong. So they knew I was familiar with you know people from Hong Kong, and you know I sort of understood their culture a little bit. And they wanted to give me a great, and they wanted to give me a gift uh, for helping them get Evil Dead, you know, all worked out. Um, and so they called me and they said, so we've got this movie in New Orleans. Do you want a costume designer? I'm like, I, does the Pope wear red suspenders? I hope <laughs> And anybody. Um, yes, of course I do. And they're like, great, come on down. So it was a Jean-Claude Van Damme extravaganza, but it was my first trip to New Orleans. And then right, of course, right after that, I went back to New Orleans to shoot, um, to shoot Eve's Bayou. Yeah. And I have to say, I don't know how they choose, and I'm bouncing all over the place here. I don't know how they choose winners when it comes to wardrobe design or costume design, because, you know, I was just going through some of the past winners, right? So you have like Black Panther last yeah. year and then like yeah. Mad Max in 2015, The Great Gatsby yeah. in two, like it's all over the place. How do you even, it just seems like it, obviously nobody does this profession to get awards. I mean, they're nice because you know, awards, you know, are always nice no matter what profession you're in. But like, I don't know how they even begin to choose, you know, what, where a, an award for design would even begin, Karen. I don't well, get that. We, um, we look at as many films as we can. I usually, I try and view about 200 films a year before I vote. Uh, and we, tr you know, and we try and, you know, we kind of talk to each other. Well, what have you seen? What have you seen? Okay, I'll take a look at that. So we try and make the field as big as we possibly can. And then ultimately, I feel as costume designers, we try and take a lot of things into account. How much the costume designer had to invent, maybe like in terms of science fiction, like what did they have to ground their... What did they have to ground their choices in? How much did they have to invent? How many pieces of clothing did they have to invent, you know, or to, to, to make? How much money do we think they had? How creative were they? How good do the actors look in their stuff? You know, so it's not, it's, it's not just, you know, how good were their choices? And sometimes it's, um, you know, sometimes it's a, Sometimes there are things brought to bear on a costume designer. The director has a specific idea and is very, very heavily involved in costume choices. So we try and take as many of those things into account as we can, and we try and keep our minds as open as we can until we get right down to the voting. Right. Uh, you know, and then we come up with our 
I think it's 10 choices. And we send those on, and then the rest of the Academy votes on those. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, such an eclectic list. I was looking at yeah. it. You know, it, it, when you do like a movie like The Notebook, right? So do you find that it's it's easier or harder working? I mean, you know, I, let me be more specific here. So when you do The Notebook, do you find that when you create outfits for uh, like Gosling and, and many of mm-hmm. these, do you feel it, it's – is it – added pressure is it does it make the job easier i mean not so much with their personality but because of who they are because of the magnitude of the movie do you feel sometimes more pressure karen with a bigger production like that that ends up like just blowing up being so successful and so you know widely received or is it you know what you take every project as it comes just your normal kind of routine how how does that work for you uh, so there's so that's like a ten part question you yeah, just. I did. You're right. It was unfair, kind of. Yeah. Uh, so the Notebook was not a big movie. It was it was a pretty small budget, um, and when I don't think any of us had any idea how big it was going to get. Um, but that aside, I'll say that period movies are harder and easier than contemporary movies. They're harder because you generally have to make everything for your uh, for your principal actors, at least. So, or in some cases, like you know, again, going back to underground because it's before the Civil War, you have to make most of the clothes for everybody mm-hmm. um, because you know what exists is in tiny sizes, and when you're shooting in Baton Rouge or you know rural Louisiana, the extras you're going to get are not going to be a double zero; they're going to be comfortable, normal, well sized, you know, people with you know, great body appreciation. So they're going to be normal people sizes. So you're building for all those people. So the building part can put pressure on you. Um, but on the other hand, you're, you're tendered more respect because you've done the research and nobody else has done as much research into the clothing as you. So they, people tend to kind of take your word for it, Mm. you know? So, whereas when you're doing contemporary, you know, people would say, oh, don't show me any Vince. I'm only going to look at Armani. And you're like, okay, you know. Mm. But Armani isn't making anything this year that's right for your character, but Vince is, you know. So th- that's a f- that that's like a six of one, half a dozen of the other situation. Um, and when you are shooting, like when I shot um, – uh, the Bijou, which became known as, uh, it was at that, um, Jim Carrey movie, uh, became known as something else. Oh, the Majestic? Uh, Majestic. Thank you. Um, that was a huge movie. That was a hundred million, 112 million, something like that. I don't exactly remember what the negative cost was on that, but, and, and everything had to go through the studios. Um, and, and the, I mean, what was great was that I'd already worked with Frank Darabont before, and the studio knew me and trusted me, and Jim Carrey trusted me completely. Right. So that helped that a lot, um, but everything did have to go through the studio. And, of course, when everything goes through the and, and a lot of times now when you're starting a series, you know, you do your initial fittings and you send it, you know, you send your, your character ideas to the studio, and, and a lot of people, you know, want to put their thumbprint on things. So there's, there's, you kind of have to be, you know, you kind of have to adopt this kind of laissez-faire kind of, okay, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. It's all going to be awesome. It's going to be great. You guys figure out how to meet in the middle and then you tell me what to do. But before I, you know, try and appease one side and then have to swing the other way, trying to appease the other side, I'm just going to hang out and chill until you guys figure out where you're meeting in the middle. You know, so then there's... There's some of that going on as well. Right. So I think that addresses maybe four of the ten-part questions. <laughs> yeah, you did a good job answering the question I asked you that was 34 parts. So, yes, <laughs> thank you for that. You know, And I have to say, Majestic, underrated, great Very. movie, great movie, great movie. Beautiful, looks beautiful, it, it's, yeah. and it's a lot better than people give it credit for. And that's yeah. – yeah. So, and, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you because you, you touched on this, I want to kind of – Pick your your art slash science brain here. What is easier for you? Because we talked off the air about a little sci-fi, but what's easier for you, a period piece or or creating sci-fi, or, or is it is it just 
a different type of challenge. It's just a different type of challenge. You know, when you're doing period, you want to, like, I always want to push the envelope. And the further I get that envelope to push, really, the happier I am. So creating, you always have to pay. So, for instance, on on Underground, uh, I played a lot with re reinterpreting the pre-Civil War era. So I, you know, the, the basic shape has to be there so that you, so that, because you have a covenant with the audience and you always have a covenant with the audience, no matter what you're doing, whether it's period, contemporary science fiction or, you know, whatever, you always have to have, you always have that covenant with the audience where you have to nod to or identify where you are in such a way that the audience can understand that, understand exactly where they are immediately, you know, which goes back to that comment about you have to know everything about the character before they open their mouth. You have to know where they are in time as well as who they are and where they are socioeconomically, education, etc. So, but I would then take the shape of these antebellum gowns and I'd run them through like Dior of the 50s. Right. You know, so I'd reinterpret um, bodices and things like that, which which ended up with some very interesting shapes. And, you know, and I, and I really was happy with a lot of the things I did there. And then in science fiction, you have this other kind because there's so many kinds of science fiction now. I mean, it used to be like you had a guy in a robot suit with a zipper up the back. You know, that's where we started. And since then, we've gone everything from like Star Wars to Star Trek to, you know, to to uh, carbon to what is that altered carbon, like all these different kinds of sci fi. So you have to now sort of carefully mince through that minefield and pick where you're going to land and then create something that's believable and not outlandish because you can't put somebody in the huge shoulder pads that we used to do in the eighties and say, okay, it's science fiction. Cause look, they're wearing huge shoulder pads. Um, so everything has got its challenge, which is why I'm still, why, which is why I don't think I'll ever be sick of what I do. No. And, and you're so good at it. And I have a few more questions for you. Thank you so much, Karen, for giving me almost an hour. You don't know how much I really appreciate this. Oh, I love talking about myself. Are you kidding? <laughs> you are not. You're definitely not. You are not egotistic in any way, I promise. But I, I, I have to say, though, you know, one of the things, shows that came on recently that I really love, and, and, and yes, certainly for the acting, it's certainly for all the other intangibles, but it's it's the it's the costume design, it's the way the show looks, it brought me back to when I was a kid. It brought me back in time. And that is Stranger Things. And I think, oh, yeah. but, and I think, Karen, people, you know, it, it, it kind of goes to your point. I think people love it, and I know they love the show, but I think that they love it, but I think it's because of the costume design. I think it's, it's almost like subliminal in a way, like, it brings you back in time. Yes, the kids are fantastic, but yeah, I almost, I say, the kids are really fantastic, and the and the writing doesn't suck much either. No, and a direct, the Duffer <laughs> Brothers are phenomenal, but yeah, they almost, really are. Almost subliminally, though, it's like it brings people back. It, not only does yeah. it bring you back to a decade, it brings you back to a specific like that is nineteen eighty five to a yeah. T. You know, yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, no, they've done a great job on that show. So, Mike, I guess my question to you from that is: Is there something that you've seen? that you've been blown away by that, you know, whether it's a movie or a show um, that you've been really taken back by where you are so moved from the costume design or, or even the, the, the way the set looks and anything along those lines. Uh, there've been a couple of things. Um, there was, uh, well, I love the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yes. I, she, uh, she has my heart on a platter. She's done such an amazing job with the costume design on that. You know, those characters are so right and so dead on, and her taste is so exquisite. Um, I also loved, and I'm going to forget the name of it, so you're going to have to help me out. It was a movie about P.T. Barnum, and it was either last year, no, it was the year before. Um, And uh, it was a very underappreciated movie. And I thought it was so incredibly gorgeous. What oh, was the, the greatest showman with Hugh Jackman. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. Yes. And the same, the same year, there was a movie about World War II. 
that was directed, I'm sorry, that was costume designed by my friend Jeffrey Kurland. I, uh, and it was about the, it was about some major battle. I, I can't remember. It I wasn't like the story wasn't to me, wasn't as interesting as what Jeffrey did with all these guys in one of three uniforms and every single person. And you know, and you don't pick it up except subliminally, unless you're a costume designer, of course, and you're like, you know, not paying any attention to the dialogue, but you're scanning, you know, like the distressing and the, you know, and the crumpledness of these costumes and guys who had been in the war uh, longer had more aged uniforms and guys who had been in the war had more up-to-date versions of the uniforms. I mean, his research on that and his attention to detail in this simple little war film that I think all takes place on in one or two days is so insanely beautiful. Um, and that's just a handful. I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, there's so much incredible, brilliant work being done. Yeah, and you know? Are you ever able to, and I ask this sometimes to directors or actors, are you ever able to separate, you know, the professional side of you from the fan? Like, can you ever watch a movie and not, you know, pay attention yes. to, no, no, because the, and that's a serious, that's no, like. The Shape of Water. I had to watch The Shape of Water three times before I could pay attention to the costumes, which I loved. Another great, great, great uh, costume design job. Louis Seguera did a fantastic job on that. Uh, but The Shape of Water entranced me. So completely, it's one of my top five favorite movies ever. Wow. Every time I watch that movie, I'm lost in it. Absolutely lost. Yeah, I absolutely love it, too. I've, I've had a few actors from that on the show. It, it's such it, – even though it won an award and many awards, I almost feel like it's still underappreciated. Like the movie still has to sell itself, and it's, it's just such a work of art. I, I'm, on, I'm on the same page with you on that, Karen. I, I, I love The Shape of Water. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's I think it's one of those movies that it's not eminently approachable. It's a difficult sell, you know, and it's probably only because it's directed by who it's directed by that it even got made. But it's a I mean, it's like a fish man falls in love with a deaf girl and her best friend is a woman of color. And then there's this evil white dude. And you're like, what? You know, I mean, imagine going to the studio with the one paragraph cell on that and having people sit in a room and look at you and go, that's really interesting. We'll get back to you. Yeah, you know what I mean? right, right. No, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. You know, yeah, you're so right. But it's like when people describe that movie, to, yeah, it's about a, a woman who, like you said, kisses a fish. And it's like it's right. so much deeper than that. Like it's, it's, right. it's layers and layers deeper than that. Right. But like I, you know, so I have, um, three stepchildren and they live in Germany and, um, one of them has a granddaughter. I'm very close to my granddaughter and, and her mother, my, um, my, my, my daughter-in-law. And I really wanted, like my son saw the shape of water cause they knew I loved it, but my daughter-in-law didn't want to see it and she didn't want to show it to her daughter cause she thought it was creepy because a woman kisses a fish and mm. falls in love with the fish. And I'm like, no, 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 please, please, please. And I had to fight so hard and finally i got them to sit down and to watch i said let's just watch 10 minutes and if you hate it okay great we'll turn it off they were in instantly entranced and they're still talking about that movie but the whole it's like how do you sell that movie to the public and it's a shame because it's like if you love guillermo del toro then you like you know you're going to go on some crazy acid trip and it's going to be amazing right like, he's my favorite directors of all times um you know oh and another person you know that i think does amazingly with he uses different costume designers um but i'm really madly in love with with his idea of costume because it's pretty much the same throughout all of his movies is a wes anderson oh good call i thought you were gonna say tim burton yeah yeah wes anderson absolutely tim burton i mean tim burton's great and um his costume designer, uh, Eileen, no, uh, oh God, oh, I can see her face and my, I'm just so terrible with names of things. I apologize, but you know who I mean? Colleen Atwood. Right, right. She's, she's also extremely talented. That is a very, um, dramatic costume. I, when you think about my work and then, you know, it's, it's naturally the, the films I'm, uh, that I, that appeal to me are a little less dramatic because i think less is more 
Um, so while I love Colleen's work and I love Tim Burton's, you know, very incredible, um, uh, dramatic and ethereal and, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? This is specific word. Well, it'll come to me in a second. Everything's a little bit over the top with Tim Burton, which is great. Um, but my work tends to be a little like 15% under the radar. And I think Wes Anderson's work is the same. Right. You know, he's that kind of very specific kind of meter to his, to his dialogue and how the directors and how the actors deliver the dialogue and the costume design is the same, the production designer, and it's all very charming and somehow intimate and somehow universal, but at the same time, incredibly stylized. Yeah, and is, does that happen a lot, Karen, where, you know, you know, and I'd say Wes Anderson, you always know when you're watching Wes and I don't mean the script, but you always know when you're watching a Wes Anderson movie. They all have yeah. the same look, Yeah, and I know what you're saying. But is that how it works? Like, I know many directors have a composer they stick with. Is it like that with costume design as well? Is it, and, and does that make it more difficult to for opportunities, or is it just, do people kind of go on your past work? Like, we read off your filmography, which is amazing. Do people kind of contact you based on that? How, how does yeah. that work? Um, I, I love to work with the same people over and over if I can. A lot of times they don't know that their show is going until, you know, like two days before they're supposed to start prepping and, and I'm not available, which happens often, um, unfortunately. But generally people will take a look at my resume and they'll see that – I'm all over the map, you know, that I've done a little bit of everything and they'll either love that or they'll go, no, this is not the person we want because they want somebody. So like, I don't do a lot of, um, I don't tend to do like a lot of like, you know, teenager kind of things because I, because I've got so much on my resume that they want somebody who only does that. Right. But then when I've got somebody who's got a big period piece that spans 50 years, they're like, oh yeah, let's call in Wagner. Right. You know, she, she can do this with her hands tied behind her back. No problem. Um, so I prefer not to be stuck in a pigeonhole. So if I had to pick one of those two paths, I'm, I'm very happy with the path I'm on. No. And that makes sense. And, and do you find like, is there an equivalent to do like, would they call you in just to talk about ideas? In other words, is it the equivalent of like an actor's audition? Do they bring you in just yeah. to, okay. I don't know if that happened or Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll put together a presentation and very often I'm on location. So I do it via Skype, um, you know, and I'll put together boards and send the boards electronically. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk them through those boards and, you know, and again, I'll include in those boards, I'll include the things you expect to see. And then a couple of things you don't expect to see. And I'll be like, well, now the reason I included this thing that's completely making you roll your eyes in your head is because, and they'll be like, Oh, the mods. Okay. I get it. You know? Um, so yeah. Did I answer your question? You definitely did. And before I let you go, you had a pretty amazing year. Uh, just talk briefly about what you, what's coming up, anything you wanted to get out there. Uh, so I had a phenomenal year. Um, I'm very excited about uh, my year creatively. I did a pilot called Cypher, which I hope is going to come out soon. I don't know really what the status is right now for sci-fi. And it's sci- you know, I got to invent some very science fiction-y kinds of costumes based on electron microscopy photography. That's not correct, but... Um, like- <laughs> But you know what I mean. Um, and then I went from there. I did the I did a, the first Quibi uh, in New Orleans. It's called Free Ray Sean, and I'm not sure when Mark Zuckerberg is going to launch Quibi. But it's a fantastic it's a fantastic project that straddles the line uh, between uh, a Black Lives Matter story and you know so the 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 police side of the story and what they perceive their reality to be versus the person who has been framed uh, for potential, supposedly selling drugs who naturally maybe didn't ever sell them, but you'll have to watch it to find out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's urban New Orleans and it's, it's bringing that whole beautiful culture to the screen in a way that's very natural and, and approachable and believable. And then I went from there to a project called Madam C.J. Walker, which is about the first female 
self-made millionaire in the United States. She was born to parents who had been emancipated from slavery two years earlier, and she ends up uh, building a house in upstate, uh, upstate New York, the Hudson Valley, right next to Rockefeller. Uh, and her struggle to find herself and become herself and become her best potential. Uh, and that is a early 20th century piece. So I managed to do a little bit of everything this year, and that is just the way I like it. That is so well stated, Karen. And, and that was my goal today, to present the life and experience of you know one of the most talented costume designers that I've seen. And not only that, to present the story the, the entire picture of a storyteller and, and, and one that people moving forward will hopefully now notice and realize all the work that goes into storytelling and movie making and the making of these wonderful television shows. And I cannot thank you enough, Karen, for being on the show today. Thank you so much. It's been such an honor and a pleasure to be here. Well, if Madge doesn't care, I certainly don't. Neither do I. All I know is that it's heaven I'm in heaven and my heart beats so that I can hardly speak and I seem to find the happiness I see when we're out together dancing cheek to cheek heaven I'm in heaven And the cares that hung around me through the week Seem to vanish like a gambler's lucky streak When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to climb a mountain And to reach the highest peak But it doesn't thrill me half as much Dancing cheek to cheek Oh, I love to go out fishing In a river or a creek But I don't enjoy it half as much As dancing cheek to cheek Dance with me I want my arm about you The charm about you Will carry me I'm in heaven And my heart beats so that I can hardly speak And I seem to find the happiness I seek When we're out together dancing cheek to cheek